Hey, we're still here at George Mason University. I'm here with Dr. Justin O'Connor from Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, we're here to discuss the article, Rethinking the Classification of Games and Sports in Physical Education, a response to changes in sport and participation. It was published in 2022, uh, just recently in the Journal of Physical Education and Sport Pedagogy. Um, as always, I, I'll put the link to the full citation of the article in the notes. Uh, Justin, you were one of the first people who came onto the podcast, so thank you for that. And during that podcast, you really blew my mind about unstructured and unorganized sport and how uh, the sporting world has started to move that way, or people have started to move that way, not necessarily sports. Um, so I'm really happy to have you back on. Um, so officially welcome. Thanks. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been a while. felt like yesterday, but I think it's been quite a while now. You've been able to crank out a whole bunch of episodes, and they're really great. I love listening to them. So thanks for having me. Yeah. So um, can you start off by just letting everybody know, how do PE scholars and practitioners classify or categorize games and sports just in general? Yeah, so classification systems, um, I mean, what we use classification to simplify the world to help us make sense of things. And they're a framework that, um, you know, will group things together around a set of common features typically. And it may be those common elements, those common features relate to say skill or tactics or um, particular kinds of understanding or patterns of participation. Um, or they could be to represent forms of physical activity that are common in society or popular in society. And really it's just a way to simplify language and simplify communication and present a sort of a cluster of ideas rather than having to talk individually about each one. You can kind of sum them up and give a, a I guess a, a briefer account of what they are, what they stand for and what they do and how they, how elements within them might, might be common. And I think that's pretty much how the, the classification structures have worked in, in, and physical activity and physical education over the, in the past. And, and they've been, you know, there's been a range of them. It hasn't just been the four game form classification. There's been a range of different ways to classify and they keep getting modified. And I guess what we're talking about here is just another iteration, another version of, of that, that, I guess, reclassification that's happened previously. Mm -hmm. So what's the, like the role or importance of developing and applying a classification system for games and sports? So I think the most important thing that, that the classification system has done is it's taken the conversation away from uh, big-sided, full-sided adult versions of sport mm -hmm. where they were taught in kind of isolation of each other. And so there would be, you know, a module or a unit of work on, on I don't know, uh, baseball, and then you'd move on to the next sport. And what it did was it sort of, by blurring those sports together, it enabled people to look at the common elements within them and start to unpack them and therefore um, think about the step before you get to that big formal sport game and, and what's the common elements and how could we then um, teach this in a, in a sort of education context. And so it really did progress the thinking towards more um, you know, conversations around sort of things like tactics or conversations around common elements or common skills that we could then leverage and, and you know, build on to then see transfer into sort of more, more I guess, specific forms of participation. Yeah, so the idea of you're guarding somebody in soccer could be similar in basketball, could be similar in lacrosse, but there's certain nuances there. But the idea in those three types of games is 
invasion, right? Yeah, that's basically right. So, and and you know, other other people haven't just classified on the basis of tactics. Um, I think it was Armand who sort of wanted to represent the different types of participation that we should be focusing on in, in PE and so um, create a kind of different classification around these are the sort of areas we should cover. So it was more of a signalling about what are the popular common uh, activities, games that we should cover to have a comprehensive kind of curriculum. So it could be around that idea of tactics, but it could also be around um, other things like, um, you know, understandings, a common set of understandings, or it could be around uh, I guess you could you could group things around values, or you could group things around leadership kind of concepts or uh, communication. So I think classification it depends on the purpose. What's the goal? What are you trying to achieve? What what's sort of the end end game here? And then how do you cluster things to make sense of them so they you can see that um, across and a bit more clearly and a bit more foundationally. Mm-hmm. I think so. Uh, one of the headings in your in your paper was what counts as games and sport. So I'm wondering, can you explain like what are we even talking about when we're categorizing these? What like what fits in and what doesn't? Yeah, so um, classification frames are really good for making sense of the world and simplifying things, but they're also reductionist, right? So mm-hmm. when you put a classification around something, something will will get chopped out. So that we put a, a boundary around it and that boundary becomes a line and there's things that say on the inside of that line, there's things on the outside of that line. And we use Bernstein in his paper to kind of challenge this notion of the boundary. And um, within those boundaries, things kind of get prioritised and privileged. And if you didn't make it inside the boundary, you tend to get ignored a little bit. And so we were concerned that the classification frames were, were serving a particular purpose and doing a great job of that. But at the same time, um, eliminating or removing a focus on a whole bunch of activity that was happening in the world uh, that was kind of trending in the world and was not being accounted for in the common language around the things we teach in the name of games and sports. And when we started to grapple with this idea of what a game and sport was, it became quite quite tricky because if you go to a really rigid definition of sport, then at its heart is this notion of competition mm-hmm. and rules-based competition. And the difference between a game and a sport is this, is this physicality. So sport has a strong element of physicality to it, whereas the game you can sit down and, and play chess, right, without really getting too sweaty. Um, but, but that idea of competition is sort of central to the notion of, of what a sport is and how that competition is... Um, judged or graded or, or compared is also, if you go to these kind of extreme definitions of sport, it's kind of key to it. So you could, there's an argument that things like gymnastics is not a sport um, because it's subjective as to whether someone is better than someone else. We need objective measures of competition to, to really have this sort of notion of sport. Um, but I guess it's a continuum. And, and we kind of looked at this as a continuum. We thought, you know, you could you could take most of the this sort of physical activities as a sort of social physical activity non-sport, but if you wanted to, you could codify it. You could bring in a set of rules. You could um, structure it up and have sort of more formal, rigid ways of comparing and comparison and building competition, and you could end up turning it into a sport. So we saw this continuum from, say, physical activity at one end to sort of notions of sport at the other end. And I think the Olympics really anchored at home for me. They, they took what we would think of as a sort of a recreational activity in skateboarding 
and codified it and turned it into a sport and mm. awarded a gold medal on the back of that, right? Yeah. So the Olympics, I think, are quite tuned into what's going on in the world. They, they know that eyes on TVs is what makes the money. And they like know rock climbing, that right? the, the time... Like, yeah, so like they, they had climbing. rock climbing, which typically yeah. is not yeah. considered three, a sport necessarily in the at least in like the four categories that we like where does that fit in that... exactly and and that idea that um you know you can take a, a leisure activity like rock climbing and if you want to you can turn it into a sport kind of means when you backward map those sports you sort of also have to account it's particularly in physical education i think more so in physical education you have to account for what does the non-sport version look like and is that something we should be preparing young people for given that's going to be the most popular version of this activity more than likely so you know you're going to have more recreational skateboarders than you will olympic skateboarders yeah. um and and but it doesn't preclude a recreational skateboarder from becoming an olympic skateboarder if they want to pursue that if they want to push it if they really want to go to that extreme kind of idea of competition and so we thought that, um, you know, as, as the sort of competition ramps up, you head more and more towards a strict definition of sport. As you strip that competition, it, you head more and more towards a physical activity, recreational sort of lifestyle pursuit. But what we found in, in a lot of our research on this is competition is always there. So it doesn't matter what you do. Someone's always checking someone else out mm -hmm. to see if they're better than you, right? So we think this notion of competition is changing and that, you know, YouTube likes is just another form of expressing this idea of, you know, my ability and sharing it with a bunch of other people and getting recognition or reward for that. So I don't know if, if, if you've heard of Strava, if you're on Strava, which is a sort of a um, is that the, runner kind of app thing. Yeah, yeah. so it's like a social media in a way that you can follow. If, yeah. if we're friends, I could see if you're running and what you ran and yeah. Yeah, and so you get this thing called kudos, right? So you, you, rather than having a direct competition with someone in a in a one on one race, we might, um, you know, in it, uh, I guess in a subtle way of competition, advertise what we did, and then receive likes for that, yeah. and share it and post it, and and so we have this kind of idea of comparison. Comparison seems to be always present, and even in a skate park. We're always checking what everyone else is doing. Everyone sort of knows there's a little bit of a hierarchy, but it's, it's not this adversarial focus on all-out competition. So we think kind of competition exists in all of these activities, but the more you shine a light on it, the more you spotlight it, the more they, it heads towards this sort of codified traditional notion of what sport is. And then the more you strip that back and, and de-emphasize it, the more we head towards this notion of sort of social participation, engagement, and whatever you want to mm -hmm. Frame that as, and so yeah, we think we could probably turn most of the activities we put in this paper into a formal codified sport if you wanted to. Yeah, and one of the quotes you have in here from Board, uh, I think it's Borge, twenty twenty one, that was a definition of sport that I highlighted when I was reading, and that definition is an extraordinary, unnecessary, rule based, competitive, skill based physical activity or practice where there is cooperation to fulfill the prelusory goal of having a competition. And it kind of made me chuckle yeah. because it's extraordinary. Like, it's just like, who came up with this? It's unnecessary. And then when you think about it, you're like, yes, it is totally unnecessary that that game is happening. It has nothing to do with like how society runs. 
but still like people find enjoyment in it and stuff. But then it has all these things and then you cooperate, right? You cooperate together to fulfill this goal of having competition. And it's such a, I mean, it's a very accurate way to describe sport, but it was, I chuckled and highlighted it in that paper because it, it puts things kind of into perspective. And I don't know if like rock climbing is that, but when it goes into the Olympics, it has rules. It's competitive. It's now no longer necessary, you know, instead of like going out and climbing with your friend just for the sake of doing it. Absolutely. Yeah, that's spot on. And, and so, so we kind of challenge, we, we wanted to challenge that notion of, you know, a really fixed definition and, and a really anchored definition of sport, particularly in a classification frame of sport, right? So we had to be really clear about, well, okay, if you're going to have a games classification system, we've got to include games and sports, right? So, you know, that, that idea that there was such a rigid line between what is and what isn't a sport didn't kind of work for us. And we much prefer this idea of, well, it could be a sport, but it could also be a recreation or a physical activity. And it doesn't preclude us from focusing on it in, in say, primary physical education or secondary physical education, just because at this point in time, it's not a sport, right? Or, mm-hmm. or it may not be, you know, be being played as a sport. It could be, right? Yeah. So there's that potential that sits there. We didn't really want to rule too much out um, from that by using a really rigid definition. So we went with a bit more of a, you know, a softer um, notion of sport and one that's probably more popular amongst, say, you know, if you were to look up the sport participation statistics, you would see a whole bunch of activities in there that boys wouldn't classify as a formal sport. Mm -hmm. And so we were more more, uh, open to the idea. And that's what Bernstein kind of challenge you to do is to open up those boundaries and widen the, the kind of conversation and, and let more things in so that you have greater diversity and you have greater inclusion. And, and that's the kind of um, approach that we took is to take a fairly liberal general um, version of, of what we might think of as, as sport. So before we go into what you're proposing, can you just explain the four game form classification system, the one that most like if you go into a peat program, most of the time, how you would classify the sports? Yeah, so we use this a lot with um, our undergraduate students, and uh, you know, it, it wasn't. In, I kind of started to think about, well, where is this activity? <laughs> Until I started to question this framework, but um, basically, sports for a long time um, have been divided up into sort of target sports, where the the goal is to you know put an object close to another object. Uh, and either score a point, and that can be done um, alternately. So you could have a, I could have a go, then you could have a go, and then and so we could block each other. So there could be an element of defence in that. Um, court net wall games, which basically divide the space up. Um, they've got some defined area, and you're attacking space of the opposition, and, and they're trying to defend their space. Usually attacking with an object like a ball. So think of tennis and volleyball. Invasion territory games, which are the most popular. Um, and certainly the, have the biggest numbers of participation in the in in I guess in Australia and the world, um, and that's where we're trying to take territory or, or gain territory and to put the ball into a, some sort of net or goal at the other end, um, up and down a field it has offense and sort of defense sort of active at the same time, uh, and then striking fielding games like your baseballs and your your cricket and and where there's a field 
hit the ball into an area, try and try and score some runs. So they're the dominant classification forms that we we tend to use a lot, and that a lot of the um, pedagogies are built around a lot of the models, based practices mm-hmm. are built around these, and so they have quite a powerful reach. They are they are dominant. They're, they're kind of the language that gets used, uh, and they're, they're they're quite a pervasive set of um, classification systems that that we see we see everywhere, right? Everywhere we look, yeah. we see these four game forms, and. Consequently, uh, you, you ask the question, well, what's missing or what's not included? And it, it starts to illuminate a whole bunch of stuff that potentially gets ignored when this becomes the dominant frame and this becomes the one that everybody thinks accounts for, for sport mm-hmm. when the reality is it doesn't. Um, particularly uh, court, netball, target and field striking games, they're, they're very poorly represented in the most popular activities that people play. Yeah. And in, uh, in your paper, you talked about within Australia, 68% of the top 50 participation sports, in air quotes, in 2020 were not represented by the dominant four-game form classification. And you talk about how, you know, in the U.S., that number has dropped, right? And, and the classified four normal categories um, and a lot of, you know, people are moving towards non-organized games. So obviously that is one issue that an RP program is modeled after those four. We have a field and invasion games, we have a net and target games, um, and then we have like the fitness portion, and then we have the the rhythmic kind of gymnastics and dance together, um, which in this category wouldn't fit into sports, but we don't have those other sports in there. So are there other like issues with that classification yeah so um that classification if it's if it's the dominant voice if it's the loudest loudest frame in the room um will dictate what gets counted in the name of physical education and what doesn't and and that will give you the framework that you use to set curriculum it will give you the framework you use to choose what activities are we going to cover and if it's a narrow framework, if it's a framework that ignores 68% of the most popular participation activities, then we're excluding opportunities. We're missing out, right? And and we know there's a shift. This global kind of trend um, towards more participatory social experiences in our in our movement forms, our physical activities, and less focus on all-out competition. We we can see that play out um, across you know continents. So I think we're really missing a trick here if the dominant classification framework is centered on these particular set of sports that have a clear objective of defeating an opponent, right? It, it, when you look at these and you look at the, the other ones that aren't included, there is a distinction to be made. So you think of uh, an invasion game, it, there's, there's that kind of language around uh, attack, defend, uh, how do I exploit a weakness, how do I find a gap? How do I penetrate your defense to score a goal? And so it's very competitive. If you think of court net wall games, it's me opposite you. We've got a net between us. I'm trying to beat you. You're trying to beat me. We're facing off in this, this head-to-head frontal competition. Um, and, and similar with striking fielding games, you know, there's someone pitching a ball to try and, you know, get past me. And so there's a very overt focus on, on sort of this head-to-head competition. 
And when you look at these other activities, um, such as say skateboarding or, or, or the climbing we mentioned, um, or even park run jogging kind of, you know, so that social notion of a half marathon or whatever you want to mm-hmm. think of, it's much more parallel. It's much more side by side and it's more, it, it's kind of turn based or, it, or it's less, it's less overtly head to head competition. And so it begs the question, what kind of, you know, tactics are we thinking of when we think about skateboarding, right? It's not about me beating you in opposition. Mm-hmm. It's no longer about how do I defeat you? And that really forced us to think, well, what is the common element that sit within these kinds of activities? And, and it really, it gets you to ask different kinds of questions about what is the purpose of participation. And when we started to do that with these alternate, uh, well, I don't want to call them alternate because they're actually mainstream, but when we started to think about these other activities that are not included in the classification frame, you really do start to, um, ask questions about why are, why are people enjoying these activities? What makes them uh, more engaging? What makes them so popular? And it's less and less about the, the tactical advantage to beat someone in opposition, mm-hmm. right? That's part of it. Like there's always that element of competition, as I said, but it's certainly not the be all and end all. It's not the goal here. Yet what tends to happen with these classification frames is all of the questioning is focused on how do I beat you in opposition? You know, it's, there's nothing about the sort of shared social experience, about the, the kind of um, how do we manage to master this and how do we showcase that and how do we get kudos for it or how do I feel like I'm getting better? It's all focused on how do I beat you? Yeah. And I think that, that misses, we miss out on something really important when all of our questions to students are about how you're going to exploit this defense to penetrate and score a goal. Yeah, and and I think it's interesting because if you look at in a skate park, there is no direct one-on-one competition traditionally, right? Because you, like, I think you described it as parallel, right? That you are kind of going in and out of the bowl or the ramp or the, you know, the open area and you're doing skills and com- you're still comparing yourself to others if you're if that's the type of person you are but when it's structured into the olympics or the x games then it adds it adds that next level of like i am competing against you to win the x games or win the olympics and it's almost like the traditional what's let's say olympics is like the tradition of sport the tradition of sport is coming into these areas like surfing in that was added, uh, rock climbing, skateboarding, that's adding that competition that's traditional. And I know that there are people who compete in these sports that refuse to compete in the Olympics or the X Games. They just do it because they really, really love it and they don't need to compete against anybody to show it. So I think that it's interesting that those two worlds are merging. It's almost like the old world is not ready for all of these unstructured disconnected in a way that you know there's no sponsor money there's no tv money there's no this and that and i mean that's what the olympics is it it makes money if people are watching and it makes money when people are buying advertising spots so i think that's interesting that those those sports that are i wouldn't just limit it yeah i wouldn't just limit it to those um 
kind of sports like skateboarding climbing, I even see this trend playing out in, you know, we'll think of basketball, right? The Olympics also brought in 3v3, park basketball. So, you know, it's not just about um, what you might call edge sports or extreme sports or alternate sports um, becoming mainstreamed and and codified. Um, And and our, our goal with this paper is to sort of push back against that whole uh, let's have an extreme focus on competition and let's look at what, why else people participate, why else do people engage. And, and when you go, when you move back down towards the participation side of this, this continuum, you start to realize there's more questions to be asked, right? When you look at um, the groups of young skateboarders in, in communities, they've got to find spaces to work, right? They've got to negotiate their environment. They've got to find their space. They've got to find an obstacle that matches their ability, then they need to know how to exploit that obstacle. So the tactics become something else. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not about how am I going to beat you. It's about how do we make the most of this space? How do we not get kicked out of here? Um, you know, how, how, yeah. can we, how can we capture this to get the best representation of our trick, right, on, on film? So the tactics become something quite different when you think about the kind of participatory end of that continuum. And we're even pushing those more traditional, you know, four game and court net wall, you know, invasion games, field structure, to actually think about more than just the competition side of tactics. Um, what else do people, you know, what else should we be asking about? What other questions should we be asking in this space that take us away from just how do I beat you in opposition? And I think that's going to be, it's going to do a lot more work for us when it comes to engaging people in, in, in participation. And should they want to take it further and compete, they've got that option. But it's not the be all and end all. It's not the it's not the primary focus for why we're here. Yeah. So, can you uh, tell us about your proposed new uh, new classification or just the proposal? Yeah. So, um, what we wanted to do was go. Okay. Well, well, how do you think about um, how do you think about these alternate, well, again, I don't want to call them alternative. How do you think about these other activities that are um, very popular, actually? And and I think, I can't remember the actual sports, but I I added up the numbers. So if you put all cycling together and you add up the, num- the participation numbers in cycling, it was bigger than, I think it was basketball, um, soccer, and maybe netball combined. Yeah, right? I so remember more reading that cycling. in here, and, which makes sense because yeah. there's so much cycling and... Yeah. 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 So if we're not including that in our phys ed programs, then there's a lot of people who are missing out on a really, um, you know, uh, popular, engaging form of, of physical activity. And so we wanted to think, well, okay, how do we pull this in? And, and looking at our kind of contemporary society, what are the common activities that people are engaging in? And then how might we sort of group those and, and cluster those around what we kind of um, thought about was this questioning approach because the pedagogy is around constructivism uh, it's around questioning so what are we what can we understand what can we know what can we show in the name of these particular activities and so we took a, a kind of questioning framework what kinds of questions might you ask uh, to help guide us in this and then we thought about the kind of structures the um, you know the kind of way it was played where it was played and how it was played and so it led us towards these um, idea of travel sort of sports, sports where you would you either get on a bike or a, a stand-up paddleboard or a, um, you know um, a BMX, and you would you would head out 
on a, on some sort of journey and it might loop back. So it might be a, um, a lap. So it might be on a track or pump track or circuit, in which case the circuit or, or the lap becomes the kind of marker. So it's about either time over that lap or um, strategy across that lap or pacing across that lap. or So the lap becomes the kind of key focal point there. Um, or it's about the kind of the, the journey, the route, you know, the big kind of open-ended, more open-ended trip. Uh, and then it's about sort of what role does the environment play? What are the kind of key key points, the key obstacles that might we might come across? And so we were able to sort of group uh, lap circuit sports like lap swimming, um, pump track, uh, track running, uh, park run, which is a global phenomenon, right? That's, that's a 5K circuit run and park run has just gone nuts globally. Um, but it's much more than a competition, right? It's, it's, it's part of it is a competition, but, but a lot of it is about social interaction and social engagement and that completing that circuit, usually two, two laps. Mm-hmm. Um, to get to your 5k is and, and having those volunteers and support process so that you know that, we kind of clustered those together and you think about how this comparison if you wanted to take this to a sport extreme how is comparison made well it's done through timing right which is pretty objective right. um, how is the play structured well it's side by side kind of parallel someone's in front of you someone's next to you someone's behind you uh, and then the kind of conversations around pacing and uh, speed and, and, and times around laps. If you think of lap swimming, you know, it, it's about pace and there's a sort of a rhythm to it and a, and a pattern to it. Whereas the journey sports are a little bit more open-ended. They're a bit more um, perhaps segmented. There's, there's elements, there's areas that become peaks and, and elements that become sort of chill out zones. And, and, and so we thought that that's got its own unique set of characteristics um, action or trick sports we thought were really popular. So the kind of rough sports like, you know, surfing, um, BMX, down, dive bombing down a, a side of a mountain on a mm-hmm. mountain bike, um, they sort of had that kind of element of rush. There was a, there was a sort of a surge to it, like a, a high intensity, peak intensity, and then perhaps a time where you re- recover and chill out and then you hit it again and it's this big, this sort of big rush. Mm-hmm. And then there was the stunts and tricking activity. So I didn't know tricking was a thing until I read about it in a paper from the UK where kids were kind of in this gymnastics-y space with, with sort of sprung floor and and they were doing these body tricks, right? They weren't, it wasn't formal gymnastics. They were just throwing themselves into, you know, spins or twists or jumping up on a wall or, or doing flips or whatever they were doing and they would name their tricks, right? So they'd practice it, practice it, practice it. Then they'd, they'd pull it off. Everyone would give them a cheer, they'd get to name it, and then they got to coach it or share it with other people. And so people were kind of creating these like kind of parkour kind of stunts and tricks mm-hmm. and sharing them. And we could do that with a skateboard, you could do that with a BMX, you could do that with a... So the same kind of philosophy just depends on the object and the space you've got available. Um, and parkour, you know, I think is, I think of that as that sort of bodily, how do I overcome an obstacle? How do we how do we exploit this obstacle to do something with our bodies and body shapes? And then there's the um, rhythmic or kind of aesthetic things, which, you know, when you you do things to a rhythm or a beat, um, you know, it's got a sort of pattern to it, and it involves generally involves stunts. So those two could be linked linked together, but a lot more synchronization and a lot more. Um, you know, that, that idea of group cohesion is probably more important in this sense. Think of TikTok, right, <laughs> as a phenomenon. Um, 
people you know, moving their bodies to a rhythm, to a beat, to produce some sort of choreographed thing. And then I think we probably, it, it depends on where we were, like culturally, if we were in, you know, in the Americas even, we might even think about combative sports as another classification that mm-hmm. could end up in, in something like this. Yeah. Because it, you know, culturally it, 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 it speaks to the, um, the context and then it, it opens up opportunities for that um, to exist. So if it's not, if it's not in the foregoing classification system, it doesn't exist. Right. We're trying to widen that classification frame and open it up to these other activities. Yeah, and to be clear, you still have those four uh, classifications. You're just expanding those boundaries in this in this sense. And um, yeah, what was interesting because so my um, doctoral student here, Alba Rodriguez. Um, she, she does jujitsu and judo. I wrestled in high school and college and I did jujitsu, um, which now I'm officially retired because I had my second back surgery and I feel like those days are gone. So I don't know if you can see in the back here, my, that's my road bike that I just bought. And now I'm going to start, uh, swimming as well, officially becoming a, a low impact sport person. Uh, so when we both read this. We're both like, okay, there's only one line in here about combative sports. So I'm glad that you brought that up. And, and in your article, and I like how you, uh, the three of you have framed this, is you're open to critique. You're open to changing this. And you're not saying that this is how it is, but this is the beginning of the framework that you can push research forward with and see how this, how this works. And I 100% agree with you that those four categories are not what, if we look at like what Tim Fletcher and that group is doing about meaningful physical education. And when they ask students, what are your meaningful physical activities? Like the times that you find meaning in, that's not in the curriculum. They're talking about kayaking, going on an overnight hike, um, cycling on a boardwalk, on a beach somewhere, like all of these things that aren't included in PE and and I feel like sticking to those four categories and not expanding it, like I, I found a second life with something like jujitsu for 10, 12 years of intense, really enjoyable exercise, but that's not something that was taught in, in, in the physical education classes. And I feel like we need to really open up and offer these other things because clearly the the shift is changing like moving like there are there are people even adults like you look at most adults they're not going to play if, let's say they're 40 years old they're not going to play pickup basketball they're going to the gym they're going on a hike they're going on a walk they're gonna go swimming or biking or you know they really enjoy going for a walk with somebody to catch up and that is that social aspect too that you talked about um so it's it's this this hits home for me a lot, and I'm I'm really happy that uh, that you all put this out. Yeah, we're we're quite keen for um you know we we don't we don't have the answers because we're not insiders in these activities, right? I mean, a couple of them, mm-hmm. but because you're not, we we need to get out of there and and do some work to go. Well, what are the kind of key questions that you would ask? if you were teaching this, this particular cluster or group of, of activities. And so what, you know, what, what should we be asking as part of our constructivist pedagogy when we're teaching something like skateboarding? 
um, as a as a kind of trick um, set of sports, or or even just you know stunts tricking together. What are the common elements? What are the common questions? What are the things that we should consider? And I I, I kind of recognise that there will be overlap and crossover across these categories. So they're not really strong strongly defined in the sense that that only these activities account for these particular questions. But I also find that with the foregoing classifications, I think there's questions that cross over there a lot. And it, I also think that tactically, they don't necessarily um, work that well inside each other either. So, you know, the crossover in tactics between um, rugby league or rugby union and, and um, I don't know, lacrosse is probably not that high at all. So, or especially in target games, you know, um, golf versus darts, like there's not a lot of tactical transfer mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. So I think there's weak, you know, there's pros and cons with any framework. They've, they've always got weaknesses and, and they always have problems with their boundaries. I guess what we're doing is, is trying to explode or open up those possibilities and just bring physical education along with the trend, you know, um, bring it up to speed, get it. I mean, the Olympics saw this, Sports already know this is happening. Fast five tennis, um, modified netball, modified whatever, all the sports are modifying because they realize that their original product is no longer relevant. It's, it's yeah. lost its, it's lost its um, bokeh. People are too time poor. They don't have the, the uh, resources or the commitment to give, to train two times a week and play for four hours on a Saturday. They want activity done in their time, their way, their place, their time. They want to be able to go on holiday and not feel stressed about, you know, leaving the the, um, the team. Yeah. And they prefer the social. The social side of this is so important. It's it's the like it, it doesn't really matter in all honesty what the activity is. It's that belonging to the herd. It's that I feel like I'm with a group of people. We're achieving something. It's a shared experience. We can have a chat about it. We can talk about our other stuff while we're doing it. We get the dose hormones. We feel good. Um, we go home. We move on to the next part of our lives, and I really think that's the kind of essence to it. So the activity itself is not that super important, but what I would say is the competition isn't the be all and end all. We need to we need to stop just asking questions about competition and beating your opponent in op- in an opposition, and start to ask broader questions around. Well, okay. Um, how do we access this? How do we modify this to allow others to be included? What am I willing to give up so that someone else can have a more positive experience? Mm-hmm. You know, it's about that trade-off. If you think about that, how do I lower my competitive urges to enable someone else to have an experience that's positive here? And so I think I think they're more important questions in many ways to ask if we're focused on lifelong participation. It's not about how do I beat you. It's about how do we have a shared experience in a way that, that makes us feel like we belong. And that, to me, is the essence. Yeah. Yeah, and there's there's definitely extremes of this, like cricket and baseball that takes so long to play versus something that you can do on your own time. So um, one of the one of the pushbacks that you, you acknowledge in your paper is this issue of, you know, if we think about skateboarding, parkour, um, you know, stunts, things like that, um, bicycling, issues are cost, risk, and then access, right? So I can't surf in where I live in Virginia. I, I can do certain other things, you know, but so like, how do, because 
people who are listening to this, they might be PE teachers or they might be PE professionals who are thinking about, okay, how do I, how do I add these? And a university budget could possibly do that, but how do we manage the risk and the cost and the access with the understanding that kids are, <laughs> kids are doing this at home anyway. You know, they, skate, they skateboard at 3.05 when school ends at 3. So the risk is already there, but how do we justify adding these into PE? Yeah, I, I guess, um, you know, I mean, risk is the one that gets thrown up a lot, and you would experience this with your combative, mm-hmm. you know, focus. Um, but I think it's just like anything else. We, we just mitigate risk, right? We, we, um, we, we think about the structure, we think about the approach, we think about it as an educative, and in many ways what we're doing is um, helping manage risk, right? If we put everyone in, in cotton wool and said don't do anything, then we would be very bad at risk because right. in order to understand risk, we have to experience it. We have to live it and, and know where the limits are, where our, what our capabilities are so that we can pull back. And if we delay risk, if we leave the exploration of risk until something that happens when you're 20, we're going to have a lot of people have car accidents and, and do damage to themselves yeah. because they haven't learned what, what risk is. So risk is not risk is always present. It's always there. We can't avoid it. It's how do we introduce it? How do we negotiate it? How do we work with it? And, you know, most of these activities would be no more risky than teaching, you know, some invasion games with head knocks and (laughs) so i think it's just i think it's a perception rather than than a really big massive um barrier and the steps we take to mitigate risk you know and and that's what you do you you deal with risk you manage it you you sort of um, take it into account and you you weigh it up Mm -hmm. and so if you just jump on twitter and you type in pe and skateboard you will see hundreds of examples of people doing skateboarding yeah. as part of their PE program. Yeah. You do you type in PE and parkour as a search thing, and you'll see hundreds of examples of, of parkour being done in primary schools, right? It's, um, you know, out the red uh, with done gymnastics, a lot of schools have bike ed programs. Mm-hmm. It's, and I think Andy Vasley sort of talked about how they took that from a, a kind of a, a risk-averse bike ed program the one that opened up what is cycling, you know, what are the possibilities here? And yeah. I think it requires a little bit of imagination, a little bit of um, preparedness to confront the kind of idea of, oh, it's too risky or it's too dangerous or whatever. And then uh, just work through the process. And I think the rewards will speak for themselves. You'll have uh, a high engagement, good meaning, um, really nice uh, conversations around, you know, embodied movement or um, engagement or supporting others. And I think we, I think we can address that. I don't think it's the, the, the stopper that people think it might be. And in terms of cost, what I would say is um, what you need to do is understand your learners and their context. So if you know what your area is, if you know what's around and what's available, if you do an audit of your community where the school was located, you understand the features and facilities that, that young people have access to. And then you can um, even look at your own school grounds and do a similar kind of audit and go, well, what is available here? Use that as the guide to then selecting what activities you might make um, the content that brings the curriculum, the sort of things you need to teach, uh, brings that to life. So, so look at the community, what's available, what's around here, 
select your content on the back of that to then teach the skills, knowledge, understandings that exist in the curriculum. And you'll find you'll come up with a nice marriage between what's available, what have we got access to, what resources do we have, what could we select? I mean, you're probably not going to have, um, you know, a lot of these activities in a lot of schools, but it will depend on your context. Uh, and it will depend upon what's available. And there are ways and means to give people access to things. So yeah. um, it might be that, that you kind of uh, embrace the simple to start with and progressively look to, to, to get a little bit more elaborate. But I, I dare say there will be increasing increasingly a number of external providers coming into this space to offer a way in if yeah. PE teachers aren't feeling confident. I'm yeah. pretty confident you'll be able to find someone who's willing to take on that risk mm-hmm. uh, and and help to progress these things. Yeah. Well, Justin, I I really appreciate everything that you shared. Um, is there anything that you want to close with? Is there anything that we missed about this? I feel like the reclassification of this, like pushing the boundaries, is really good. And you know, for people listening that want to look at kind of the visuals of what we kind of described through here, I think the article is well worth. And, and I think it's open access, right? So people can yeah. easily go up and just look at the, the tables to see how they, how they align because the alignment, I think, is really, really good. Yeah, I guess, I guess I'd just say that, you know, we're not saying don't do the foregoing classification. What we're saying is expand the horizons and open it up. Um, push beyond just your traditional, you know, netball game, um, volleyball unit. Uh, think about what else is available in your community and, and the best chance you've got of giving young people access to lifelong participation is to tap into the things that are available, that are accessible, that are meaningful. And rather than contrive something that's, that's you know, we think they will like, but they actually may not or may not have access to. Yeah. So, you know, do that work, um, marry up the kind of what we know is working. What, why do people participate? And it's, it's about that kind of shared social experience. It's about feeling like I'm progressing. It's that uh, intrinsic motivated way of moving where we've got that mastery climate. So we're heading towards the goal of mastering something. Mm-hmm. And rather than trying to necessarily beat someone in, in one-on-one competition. And then think about the kind of questions that invites you to ask. What, what other questions could we be asking to bring to the surface the learning, the knowledge, the understanding that we, we're trying to get get to here. So um, hopefully this framework opens that up. Hopefully it gets people thinking a bit more widely about um, the kinds of activities that are meaningful and relevant to young people. Uh, and we, we start to expand the opportunities and the horizons. And I think that's an important thing to do. Absolutely. So thanks, thanks a lot for coming on. Uh, for those of you who want to read the full article, again, I'll, I'll uh, put the citation there and the link so you can just click on it and uh, read the open access article. Um, and I want, I want to also thank uh, Abel Rodriguez for her help in producing the podcast. So uh, Justin, thanks for coming on. Uh, a four-year four year hiatus for you on this podcast, so let's not make it that long next time. Awesome. Thanks for having me. If you're still listening, you're probably really into health and physical education. So I'm going to use this opportunity to pitch our master's program to you if you don't have your master's degree yet. Um, 
our 100% online master's degree program we offer at George Mason is affordable. You can do it while teaching, and it's high quality. Um, Mason was listed as one of the top 50 universities under 50 years old in the world. Our education department was ranked in the top 10 nationally for the online master's degree program in curriculum and instruction. The master's degree uh, revolves around your teaching. So you'll use assignments from the classes to immediately apply research and best practices to your classes. You'll be part of a tight-knit cohort of health and physical education professionals who are passionate about teaching. You're also going to get an opportunity to interact with students in other content areas. So if you're interested, you can email me, look me up on Twitter, or you can go on the hpewebsite.com under study with us and watch a video that I've made.